Good afternoon, and welcome to the council. I'm your host, Charlie Pacello. And folks, we have a very, very special series that we are inaugurating today on the council. It's called the Veterans Summit Series. And we have partnered up, the council has partnered up in collaboration with the Trauma Sensitive Awareness Foundation to present this Veterans Summit Series. Uh, KUHS TV radio premieres part one of this Veterans Summit Series uh, with a special 10 part interview that provides veterans and their loved ones with information, hope, inspiration, and healing. It's going to be the first of its kind summit while exploring cutting-edge treatments and alternative therapies for PTS, TBI, moral injury, sleep disturbance, family conflict, emotional trauma, and so much more. We're going to be talking with uh, mental health experts, veterans, and their advocates are going to be providing answers, resources, and solutions to bring all of our warriors home. We're starting the dialogue today. Come and join the conversation. We're going to learn a lot in these next 10 weeks. And part two is going to be debuting in November. Uh, So tune in every Friday here at 1 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, all the way through September 25th here on KUHSDenver.com. We are the stream. KUHS, we are broadcasting live here in Denver, Colorado. And to all parts of our country, all around the world, we're being listened to by over 40 different countries here on the council. Uh, It is an honor and a privilege to be your host, and I can't wait to begin to speak to you about what today's topic means to me. Uh, As a veteran, I've uh, been touched by PTSD and and, uh, a complex PTSD, and my family has uh, been in service in our nation for generations. Uh, They go back all the way to the revolutionary time. Uh, we certainly had a lot of veteran, or excuse me, a lot of ancestors who fought in uh, in the Civil War, and in every major conflict. And so, uh, veterans are very important to me. Uh, their healing, their restoration, their dignity, their sacrifice, their courage, their resiliency, uh, and their woundedness uh, is something that has been a part of me and, and our family for a very long time. And uh, when I was asked to do this program, I was uh, very humbled by the opportunity and to be able to give to you something that can save your life and save veterans' lives and their loved ones' lives and people who are understand and are dedicated to helping uh, the, the population, the society, the culture, the veteran community, and others know what's available out there to help you to recover and heal from those invisible wounds, the, the traumas that you may have experienced, <clears throat> and, and to share your stories in meaningful ways. Uh, one of the greatest healings, uh, in, and I think we'll be talking about it later today is, or in this conversation, is about the power of storytelling and how sharing our stories in meaningful ways can really make a difference and to be able to unlock our secrets so that we don't stay sick. It's our secrets that keep us sick. And when we think that we, I was uh, sharing uh, with Kevin here just earlier, I had been uh, dealing with so much trauma from my experience that it wasn't until I had reached a crisis point that I was forced to decide whether or not I needed to share my story or keep it in. And if I kept it in, I wasn't going to make it. We want to get you to a point where you're not in having to reach that crisis point. 
that you can do it beforehand, that you can heal yourself mentally and emotionally, spiritually and physically from these wounds so that you can be better for your families, your friends, your communities, and, and for our nation, and that your stories help us to grow as a nation, to become wiser, better, and healthier. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you my very esteemed and uh, honored guest. He is an award-winning backpack journalist and author. His name's Kevin Seitz. He traded a high-profile career as a network news producer and correspondent for ABC, NBC, and CNN to become the first internet correspondent for Yahoo News. In his groundbreaking Hot Zone project, he covered nearly every war in the world in one year, earning multiple awards, including the 2006 Daniel Pearl Award Award for Courage and Integrity in Journalism. He is the author of three books on war, all published by HarperCollins imprint, Harper Perennial. They include Swimming with Warlords, a dozen-year journey across the Afghan war, In the Hot Zone, One Man, One Year, 20 Wars, and The Things They Cannot Say, Stories Soldiers Won't Tell You About What They've Seen, Done, or Failed to Do in War, of which he recently narrated a digital audio version for recorded books. In 2010, Seitz was chosen as a Neiman Journalist Fellow at Harvard University, and in 2012, he was selected as a Dart Fellow in Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. He's currently an Associate Professor of Practice at the Journalism and Media Studies Center at the University of Hong Kong, as well as contributor to many print and online publications, including Vice Magazine, Aeon, Men's Health, Parade, and Salon. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Charlie. Kevin, thank you so much for for taking time out of your day and and to talk to us about this incredible book that you wrote, uh, The Things That They Cannot Say. Um, But before we get into that, could you share just a little bit with our audience a little bit about your background and, and how you became a backpack journalist? Sure. Well, you know, I think I'm one of those rare individuals that knew what did they what they wanted to do from the time that they were very young. Um, well, there there were kind of two career paths for me. Um, one was to be a starting guard for the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think right. I made it through JV basketball. And <laughs> other was to be a, a foreign correspondent to to actually work um, as a journalist. I wanted to tell other people's stories, and that worked out a little bit better. My very first job was as a photographer for my hometown newspaper. I grew up in a small town in rural Ohio and got a camera for Christmas, um, had, begged my parents for it. Um, wasn't very good with it initially, but I practiced and then I took a portfolio down to the local newspaper and surprisingly they hired me. That was the start. But um, I, I've always been an introvert, um, you know, and it's interesting to be drawn to a profession where you have to deal with people, you know, pretty much all the time. You, know, you have to go beyond that you have to get their stories and that's the part that intrigued me you know understanding their stories mm-hmm. and so doing that meant engaging um, and so you know initially working in print and that wasn't a problem even working in radio you're not carrying a lot of equipment but when I um, transitioned into television you're working with a whole crew you know and, and I was a producer so normally when I went out on a shoot I had a correspondent I had a, a camera person I had a 
audio person and myself. And so, you know, you're a small gang going out and, and talking to an individual, and it's not the best way to get a story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you want to have an intimate conversation, it, it's usually, you know, you and another person um, talking quietly somewhere and trying to be authentic and understanding each other. When you bring a, a whole television crew, uh, it changes the dynamic of the story. It changes how people present themselves. It makes them, you know, in some cases, very uncomfortable. Uh, in other cases, it turns them into a public relations professional. <laughs> and in either case, you're not quite getting the truth. So for me, uh, there was a, a big desire to to kind of revert back to what I had as a print journalist, which was that intimacy and talking with the source. And so the only way I could do that was really to learn to shoot and to edit and produce and transmit my stories on my own. And I was fortunate enough to kind of be on my career path during that time where our digital revolution was happening, where the equipment was getting smaller, um, where we were able to tell stories, um, even complicated television stories um, alone, you know, without a crew. And I was working in a field that, you know, I, I didn't choose to do conflict coverage. It just kind of happened. You know, we all know America has gone to war quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I joined the network, um, we were just kind of beginning, you know, some of the issues that we had with Iraq. We were um, uh, incorporating the no-fly zone in Iraq um, following the first Gulf War. And I got sent to cover that and eventually got sent to cover the war in Kosovo Afghanistan, 9-11 happened, and Iraq. And so um, I I didn't choose to cover war. It just kind of happened. Mm. And while I was there, I I realized um, that if I could learn how to to master these skills on my own, I could probably get a better story. And and eventually um, I was on my own at one point in Afghanistan uh, on the front lines. I, I had a crew at the time, but I wasn't with them, and I had my own camera, and I captured a battle between the Taliban and the Northern Alliance fighters that the U.S. was supporting. And it was a, a time period when um, really the first casualty of that war happened, and, and it wasn't a soldier on either side. It was an American uh, uh, journalist, a National Geographic producer, and he got hit with a Taliban mortar shell. Wow. I captured that. And it, it became kind of a powerful image, um, you know, series of images. And what was interesting about it is that very often when you see war coverage, you see um, outgoing fire, you know, people firing out, but you don't see the results of it. You don't see hot metal um, hitting soft human flesh and the blood that results from that. And I captured that. In fact, I can show that clip to you later if you want to see it. But that was my first foray as a backpack journalist. And I realized that without the crew, you know, being on my own, I could get powerful stories and I could transmit them because of the new technology that we had. And that's what happened. Um, and, and the audience um, is more forgiving when you're covering conflict, when you're covering something that it doesn't need to look, you know, beautiful. You know, you're not working for a magazine show where you're expecting the interviews to be um, incredibly polished and well-lit and so on. Mm-hmm. You're, you're covering something that's fairly gritty. So um, the, the viewers, the audience were, you know, accepting of that. Well, I think it's so uh, unique and unusual format in being able to really get into it because I think, you know, like you said, you pointed out um, when you're when you got the cameras on front of you uh, and it's very difficult and you got the lights and you got the whole crew that's around you. It's really difficult and hard to be vulnerable and authentic and real and, and in the moment kind of a thing, because all of a sudden you. I don't know why it happens, but it does where you just come on and you start putting on, you know, your, your presentation and you, and you got to be in presenter mode. 
and it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily the truth and I think what's so wonderful about your work and, and the videos that I have seen is you have a commitment and dedication to the truth, uh, uh, like a journalistic integrity towards the truth of, of the things and how they really are, not what we want them to be, but how they really are. And because a lot of times we have it in our mind about the way certain things we think war is, certain way we think, you know, I, I mean, when I was in the military, we thought, you know, I mean, the, the, war was something that was whether you was something that you kind of thought was uh, something you wanted to do. You know, you almost hoped that you could kind of go to war because you wanted to be like your forefathers. You wanted to be like your dad. You wanted to be like your grandfather and to do those things. And so there was almost a, a part of us that glorified it. But the reality of it is so much different. Do you think in our understanding of war, I mean, you didn't choose to become a war correspondent, but were you seduced by war, uh, you know, even as it was the drums were beating and the, and the sabers were rattling? I mean, was it familiar to you in that way like it is to a lot of veterans? Without a doubt. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, you know, I grew up playing army like, like a lot of young men, some, some women, young women. Um, you know, we thought that was the the most fun we could possibly have in our backyards and you know, with our toy guns and, and so on. And, and as a journalist, it's not so different. You know, part of how you earn your street cred is have you gone to war, have you covered conflict? Um, it's become remarkably easy. We can cover conflict in our backyard these days. Um, um, we don't have to go very far, but yes, it was something that I wanted to do very early on. And, and early in my career, the first conflict that I actually covered uh, was I went to Nicaragua. Um, the U.S. at the time was funding uh, the the Contras, the Sandinista Contras against um, the Sandinista government, and I went and I covered that, and it was it was eye opening, you know, just to see the geopolitical sphere playing out in our own backyard in a very small part of Central America, um, and it did seduce me. You know, one of the earliest memories that I have from from that conflict was um, I was I was working with a Canadian military professor at the time. And we were traveling together and we picked up a couple of Sandinista soldiers uh, when we were driving back from uh, a battle site in a mountain pass. And they got into our vehicle, they were hitchhiking and I could smell the campfire on them. It was the first time I saw an AK-47 close up. Mm. And it was powerful, you know, it was just it, the imagery of it. And, and you could see how in some ways um, we as journalists have also been seduced by conflict. Mm. Um, much of our focus has to do with combat and what I learned when I did the Hot Zone Project, something that, that you mentioned earlier in, in my introduction, where I covered you know, all the wars that were happening in the world at the same, in, in one year, was that combat is, is a very small portion of, of conflict. In fact, it's probably the smallest portion. It's expensive. It doesn't happen that often. Uh, when it does, it's not, it's not necessarily soldiers that are always dying. Mm -hmm. um, our conflicts, even the early conflicts, the ancient battles that we've seen, you know, Napoleon and Waterloo and so on, you have these armies amassing across from each other, but it's civilians that die in the greatest number. They don't die on that battlefield at that time. They die yeah. from sexual violence. They die from disease. They die from um, starvation because the land that was meant to be growing food um, you know, can no longer do that. Mm -hmm. And that's continued. That's continued to this day. And, and that's part of our seduction. And, and my goal as a journalist is how do we cover war without the guns? You know, how do we cover um, you know, these battles, um, you know, and try to understand them in the, in the larger context. And that's what led to this book, The Things They Cannot Say, mm -hmm. is I wanted to follow these warriors home from battle.
what happened afterwards, what happened when the guns were put away. Mm-hmm. And quite, you know, quite sadly, that the, the, the violence and the conflict doesn't stop when the battle ends. Maybe in some cases just beginning, as you know, in your own case. Oh, my God, yes. I mean, that's so true, you know, because the, the, the war doesn't end just because you've come home. Uh, and very often you are on, in, in such a, a hypervigilant state. You're in that survival mode. You're in that fight or flight response, and it is on active overdrive. You're at a, you're running at 180 degree, you know miles per hour because you've got to be on point. You can't allow anybody around you to die. And 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 the hardest thing, and I think, and we're going to get to the video here in just a moment. It's not about killing other people. That your uh, the corporal says it's about not getting killed yourself. And so you in that. You're in that intensity so much. And then when you come out of it, then it's like all of that stuff that hasn't been allowed to be processed comes f- bubbling up to the surface. And it can be overwhelming and, and, and self-destructive and isolating and alienating because of, of what you've experienced. And I think that's you brought up a point that I, I do want to hit on before we get into the video clips in the book it is about what war is. I mean, you have a firsthand experience from Nicaragua to Kosovo to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. So you've seen a lot of war. You've seen a lot of combat conflict. Do you think we as a country and as a society need to kind of reframe our ideas about war? Uh, Like you just said, a lot of people don't know that it's mostly civilians who die uh, as a consequence of war, not the combatants. And uh, from starvation, from illness, from disease, from being uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, if people really truly knew the, to- the costs of war and its devastating impact on all those involved, Kevin, do you think we might be less inclined to use military force unless absolutely necessary? I wish that were the case. Mm-hmm. I wish we were, you know, using violence as you know, a last resort, but we're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases, we're using it as a first resort. One, one of the things that, that started to make me very upset was after coming out of, well, we haven't really even completely come out of them, but these, these decades-long conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, there were many voices supporting that, the notion of going to war with Iran. Yeah. You know, we're, we're not even clear of them. Um, and, and I know some of the individuals I talked uh, about in my book that I wrote about in my book, Tom Saul, uh, he was a, a veteran of, of Vietnam, like your father, and experienced a lot of combat. And he suppressed it for so many years when he came back. You know, he was a model teacher, but you know, he was doing drugs and alcohol. But he said the thing that tipped him over was, was, the, um, was that kind of battle drums um, to go to war in Iraq. You know, for no reason, and you know that's that's what spilled it for him. You know, made him come out and and you know kind of embrace the the trauma and the turmoil that he was feeling inside for so many years and that had bottled up. And, and we continue to make that same mistake. And, and I think we do it because we glamorize war. Journalism is, is partly to blame for that, but so is our own ignorance. You know, historically of what happens in these conflicts. Um, they're not necessarily about battles between soldiers anymore. They're battles between societies and they're battles between individuals and small groups. And you can't win those kind of wars. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to work them out as frustrating as that is, uh, you know, in, in the sense of negotiation and sitting across from people that you disagree with. But it is, is much preferable to the idea of taking up arms and, and occupying them because the, the long-term impact of this 
the actual battle and, and the death that happens as an immediate result of it is so small and, and so fleeting. You know, we looked at what happened with uh, the Islamic State and you know the the kind of post-Iraq battle that we saw happening in Syria and Iraq there. And it wasn't about territory. It wasn't about who owned it. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was about you know these historical wrongs that had been um, still taking place that had not been solved. The Sykes Picot Agreement, um, in which the Middle East was divvied up after World War One. I. I mean, yeah. there's so many factors involved, and if we continue to proceed in ignorance, willful ignorance, um, we're going to be constantly going to war. I think we probably will, unfortunately. We're not willing to do the hard work. Uh, we're not willing to do the hard work, Evan. And it's you know, and it's it, there are echoes from our past. The, of people who have served in these major uh, bloody battles and uh, wars, going, you know, from the Civil War to, uh, you know, World War One, you had these poets were writing about the carnage and the suffering. And, and you would think that you would hear from these, these tales, from the people who actually experienced it, that it would somehow you know, penetrate into our consciousness, into our mind, into our hearts to, to really see, wow, why are, we, why are we following this? Why are we doing this? But it doesn't seem to be happening. <laughs> so. I think that's such an important point, Charlie. I mean, there is such a, a rich resource of um, all kinds of history and poetry and art and, and drama and fiction and nonfiction that, that would help us to understand this. In fact, at HKU, I teach a course called Killing Stories, mm. the search for truth in the narratives of war. And we look at all of those things, you know, from the classics um, like uh, Achilles and, mm. and Odysseus um, and, and uh, you know, all of these tales up into to modern stories like um, Oliver Stone's Platoon mm -hmm. and, and looking at, at what lessons they have to teach us. And I think part of the problem is you know, there is a glamorization of certain aspects of war, but there's also not a fully a full embrace of, of why we do love it so much. You know, what, what are the things about it from your service that, that you really enjoy, that camaraderie, that yeah. sense of purpose, that, you know, that, that closeness of and bonding with individuals that you may never have those kind of friendships again in your life, mm -hmm. both because of the conflict that crystallized them, but because of the things in, and that shared the sense of purpose. So we have to look at that. We have to look at the good things as well as the bad things, you know, and embrace them, um, and, and not try to mythologize, you know, aspects of it. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it can't be these propaganda movies, you know, always funny. You know, and yeah. every military has its psychopaths. Every military has its rapists. You know, there are heroes um, that, that do a good job, but. There are plenty of people that don't, just like in every other profession. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we have to address, you know, something that, that, that's out there. Well, and I agree. And, and you were talking about some of the virtues of military service. There are so many, and that's one of the draws to it. And when you know that somebody is out there, you know, the bond of somebody who's willing to stand up there while, and protect your life, uh, in the midst of almost being killed yourself, I mean, that bond that you have with that person is so strong. So, you know, to give your life for somebody else is the is greatest form of love. I mean, that's one of the Judeo-Christian tenets. Uh, and so to have that, it, and not to be able to feel that kind of love for your brothers or your sisters, uh, because they're willing to go there with you, uh, we're coming back together, and you don't get that same kind of depth 
a feeling in the in the civilian world it can throw you off a little bit and that's why almost like you crave that that camaraderie that connection those those experiences again and it's like we keep recycling it in order to to, to get that experience of that deep bond of, of brotherly love and sisterly love that so many people experience in the combat zone. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because it, it, it's also how we get, you know, we motivate young soldiers to, to kill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in my course, I call it the fatal feedback loop. Um, you undergo this military training. You, you know, normally, in military terms, they call it, you know, uh, small unit cohesion, social cohesion. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the bond that, that you create from boot camp you know, on down. You, you experience hardship, you strip away all your individuality, you become a part of this group and then they send you to war and then the man on, on your left or right or the woman on your left or right gets killed. You want to take revenge for that. Oh yeah. You may have nothing against that Iraqi that you're fighting or that, that Afghan that you're fighting, but because you've lost someone, because you've lost a brother or a sister, you're willing to, to shoot back. Yeah. You know, SLA Marshall, the historian, wrote about it in World War II. Um, yeah. You know, only 15% of soldiers in World War II actually fired their, their weapon with the intent to kill. Isn't that so incredible? That's absolutely incredible. incredible. Could, you, could you say that again? It's 15%, right? 15% yeah. fired their weapons with the intent to kill. 75% did not. But we've overcome that, you know, in Vietnam, those numbers went up, you know, until. Yep. We lost your sound, lost your sound. Uh, Kevin, the sound? Yeah, yeah. Just a moment, folks. We're having a... Can you hear me now? Uh, can hear you now. Yep, for sure. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. No, it's... Um, I'm using my daughter's uh, portable microphone, so... <laughs> Um, it's just, it's one of those situations where, you know, the, the military, the U.S. military addressed that problem, you know, where people were not firing their weapons. And there, there's a, a set of conditioning training that, that goes into place now that has, has brought that number up. And part of it is, you know, the officer is controlling uh, the tempo, telling you, you know, this is your enemy. I, I'm giving you the authority to fire and, and, and to take that life. Um, we're using silhouettes instead of paper or bullseye targets like we used in World War II. Um, we're, we're dehumanizing the enemy mm-hmm. uh, using terms like take out the target, you know, take out, um, you know, this this objective rather than saying you know, shoot that Iraqi or shoot that, that Afghan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's a, you know, a really interesting process and that has changed quite a bit. Well, the dehumanizing process is absolutely critical in being able, I think, in order to kill somebody else, they have to be an other. They have to be someone other than human. An enemy, you have to denigrate them. You have to bring them down to a, uh, a level where it, it doesn't affect your conscience. I mean, it, ha- it has to re- minimize in some way. But you can only do that so far, in my opinion. Um, Kevin, you're... And, and so, it's so temporary, too. Yeah, it's um, so temporary. <laughs> when, when you think about it, um, so we're using terms... Um, you know, derogatory terms, you know, gook, slope, whatever was, was used in Vietnam, you know, mm-hmm. crowds for the Germans and, and so on. So what happens when, you know, those nations, you know, need to rejoin the family of man? How do we change that perception? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think you know, that's one of the greatest problems that returning vets have is that, you know, we're, we're, we're turning on the, this killing process for them when they go to war and then mm-hmm. asking them to turn it off when they come back. 
to look at someone as less than human, to humanize them, disassociate them from their humanity, um, uh, see them as, a, as a, an enemy, and then you know, to change that once they come back. And it is not something that can be done seamlessly by any means. Oh, no. And, and the, you know, and the more once you be once you are cross that bridge uh, or cross that Rubicon and have dehumanized the enemy, then the perpetuation to do harm accelerates and your willingness to commit atrocities, your willingness to do cruelties, the willingness to do horrible, horrible things, because that person is not a human being. And it's a slippery slope. And it's something that we all have to be aware of when we're asking our soldiers and our airmen and our and our sailors and our Marines to do these things. What are we asking them to do? We really need to have that conversation. And Kevin, I want to get to your book now, um, The Things They Cannot Say, because it's so compelling. Uh, it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, I was riveted, moved. Uh, it was heartbreaking, uh, eye-opening, honest, and uh, exposes a lot of truths. And uh, I think you've done something remarkable here in being able to really get into the mindset, the heart and minds of what's really going on inside of the veteran and and being able to see what's inside them and uh and one of your first stories in the book is about corporal william wold could you share his story with us please sure uh willie wald was a marine corporal um grew up in vancouver washington and just you know a dynamic charismatic young man who i met in fallujah uh really while the second battle of fallujah was happening in november of 2004 and when I met him, um, he was out on the streets after having just killed six men. Um, he had been inside a mosque where you know, there were armed Iraqi insurgents. And up until that time point, the American military had decided that they were not going to um, that they were not going to fight um, or fire back when they were taking. Um, sorry about that. When they were getting outside, um, uh, you know, some, some type of opposition from mosques, and so what they would do is, is they would avoid it. They would kind of control the area, but they wouldn't fire back into it. In Fallujah, they changed that, and they decided if they took fire from mosques, they were going to fire back, regardless of you know the public relations problems that happened there. So they went into this mosque. Uh, Willie Wald opened a, a door to a storage room, and there were armed insurgents back there, and, and he fired. Killed six of them and his men killed you know, another four or so. So when I reached him, uh, we were out on the streets and he was just juiced from the adrenaline of that experience. Um, and, and it's interesting. In my career, it's very difficult to interview um, soldiers and, and police officers, anyone you know, that martial arts and, and, and the martial forces are, are part of, of what they do. Um, you know, they may not have processed it themselves, so they don't want to talk about that, you know, certainly not immediately after it happens, but, you know, very often not at all. Mm -hmm. And so in this particular case, he had been willing to talk about it. He started sharing with me, um, you know, really a thoughtful explanation of you know, both what had just happened, you know, the killing that he had to do, you know, with his, with his own hands, mm -hmm. but also his struggle to stay alive in that war zone, the struggle to, to maintain his humanity. And who was he going to be when he went back home to be with his fiance, to be with his mother, to be with his family? Was he going to be the same person? Yeah. 
and even at that point he didn't feel like he was yeah. he felt that that change that transition inside himself and I, and I videotaped that that whole kind of exchange and, and I could share that with you and the viewers and listeners if, if you'd like to do this and this conversation took place right outside the mosque well, I, I would like to, yes, I would very much like to do that because I think it's important for people. It is so raw and it is so real and genuine uh, in, in, in the moment of battle. And I think it's, it gives, we're talking about the costs of war. And here you are witnessing it happen to somebody right now in the moment. He's just finished uh, killing six people. And now he's trying to get his guys through to, to finish their mission. But it is, it's such an important thing. We need to see these things. We need to be, bear witness to them and to hear them while it's happening. It's, it's, uh, it's so important. So please, Kevin, go ahead and, and, uh, and start the video for us, please. Yeah, and Charlie, just to set this up for your viewers and your listeners, um, I, I cut this interview. It went on for about 30 minutes. Um, but this was part of the trailer that I used for my book. So you hear some music. There's you know, some uh, some text that appears in between the clips, but you'll hear, you know, mostly Willie Wald and, and partially my questions to him and while we're, you know, on the streets of Fallujah. Hold up. 
That's how we clear a house. That's how the Marines do it. We don't mess around. My first guy, it was, I was always worried about my friends on your day, man. You were so worried about getting killed when you got it. But now, I don't have time to think about that shit. You bust into a house. Like today, I had people point eight days and six days. You don't have to touch that. What you got to do? Shit goes right out the window. I don't I think it's so revealing and uh, just watching that clip um, and seeing him being in the moment of uh, it's like it hasn't even quite hit him yet what he's going through and what he has uh, had to do and he's you know, the, the, it's so revealing. He says it's it's not hard to ki- it's not hard about killing somebody. It's hard not to get killed. Um, and um, just being, you could feel. I mean, I, I, that is better than any movie I've ever seen about the intensity and the ferocity, the horror of war captured in 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 video. I've, I don't think I've ever seen something as moving to me because movies they they they're they're they play it up a little bit but this is real this is raw this is this is the truth out of everything that i've ever shot in in every conflict zone that i've ever been to um, regardless of whether it was a battle or, or just interview this is probably the most powerful moment that i can remember uh, because he was being honest um, yeah really he gave us a gift and, and it's it's unusual you know we talked a little bit about how the the tv camera or video camera changes things and yeah. changes the environment you know willie wald what was it speaking to the camera you're speaking to me or speaking to the world and trying to to make sense of what just happened in his life you know, he changed forever at that moment uh, you know he actually changed earlier um this is a a difficult postscript to this particular story and you know there, there's more to it and it's more complicated and I get into this in the chapter about him in, in the book mm-hmm. but this wasn't his first experience killing you know and unfortunately um, the first experience that he had um, the, the people he shot were not combatants mm-hmm. uh, he was at a checkpoint at one of the bases uh, there was a, a truck or I'm sorry a, a vehicle coming at the checkpoint and it wasn't stopping despite the fact that, um, you know, there were uh, stop signs in, in both Arabic and, and English. And, you know, the people that were driving the vehicle were given signals to stop. And then his lieutenant told him to open fire on the vehicle. And so he did. And when they ended up um, opening the doors, the vehicle inside was family, uh, a man and a, a woman and their children. Oh. And they, they had been killed. Um, you know, the split second decision he had to make, you know, he was given authority to do it from his lieutenant. And, and there were many times when, you know, VBID, VBIEDs, vehicle borne uh, improvised explosive devices, have been used to attack checkpoints and, and the, the openings of bases and, and things like that. And so this could have been one of those situations. And the Marines and, and, and most of the US military have something in place called force protection where they, they don't take a lot of risks with their soldiers that they don't have to. And so 
you know, the, the result is to fire and to stop the vehicle and then see, see what the situation is. And unfortunately it was, you know, they were non-combatants. And so that stayed with, with Willie Wald, mm-hmm. um, and then built up on his repertoire of war experiences, you know, both good and bad, you know, fighting the actual enemy, but also having, you know, these innocent lives that he, he had taken by mistake. And so when he came home, he had a real struggle in, in recovering and readjusting to civilian life, as of course he would. And I spoke to his mother, you know, for the book. And she told me that it all kind of came out on 4th of July, like it does for a lot of veterans. Yeah, you know, comes out a lot. Fireworks happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I try to explain to my wife, I don't enjoy fireworks either on the 4th of July. And a lot of veterans <laughs> don't, but you, you just you hear that and it, it brings back a lot of memories. And, mm-hmm. you know, Willie Wall just kind of lost it at that point. So they spent a lot of money on psychiatrists, um, doctors, and so on. Found out that you know he had TBI, traumatic brain injury, as well as PTSD, and he started using drugs, um, drugs that he was given by the VA, and drugs he started taking recreationally on his own or to self-medicate. Yeah. And that got worse. And eventually, what he decided to do was to rejoin the Marines. He had been discharged honorably when he left Iraq, and he told his mother, "I got to go back. My brothers will take care of me." But at that point, he was such a mess. He was having such a difficult time adjusting. He had a, a, a you know drug addiction, um, and he his mom told me he developed a stutter. And so far from the respect that he would get from being a decorated war veteran, he was getting made fun of um, by other Marines. And it got so bad, and and the Marines um, were able to see that he had a drug problem. Tried to get him help to kick it. He couldn't do it. And so they discharged him, and he was being kept at the um, Bethesda, um, the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And he was kept overnight, um, and he was going to be discharged the next day. A couple of his friends went in to see him. Uh, he asked them, uh, did I take my medication already? And he apparently was forgetting what medication he was taking, what he wasn't. Uh, so he took it again in front of them. They had plans the next day to go camping. When they came back the next day, they found out um, he was in the same position they left him, and he had uh, died from a, a drug overdose. Wow. Uh, it, it, it turns out he was taking methadone in addition to his other drugs that he was taking. So methadone um, is, is a depressant, and so it created respiratory arrest you know, while he was um, you know, sleeping that night and, and ended up dying on the Marine Corps' actual birthday, um, you know, on the, the day of the Marine Corps' birthday. So. Yeah, you know, a really sad kind of postscript, but, you know, not so ape. Oh, your sound, uh, Kevin, just went off. Don't know the sound? Nope, I don't know what happened to the sound here. Nope, there it is. It's back now. Okay, sorry about that. We, had, we didn't have any signal. <laughs> it was, it, what you were saying was so good. I... I um, I didn't want to interrupt you. And so, yeah, anyway, please go on. So it's just, it's not so atypical of what happens, you know, to other veterans. They come back, they have difficulty adjusting. Um, You know, the only place that they feel normal is in a war zone. So certainly not, you know, in the home front, um, despite the fact that they miss it terribly when they're in war, but there's no place they feel at home, you know, anymore. You know, once they have those kind of experiences and they're not properly dealt with. Yeah. What you know, it, it puzzles me. And I was, I was curious, you know, why, why is this happening? Why are so many veterans committing suicide? Why are they not getting the help they need? Yeah. 
and in my investigations and in the research that I was doing, I think part of the problem is, is that we as a society don't fully em embrace their return. Mm -hmm. um, yes. you know, we, we thank you for your service. We want to buy you a beer and all those things. And yet when, if you're willing to actually try and tell us a story from a combat zone or, or wherever your, your military experience was, our eyes start to glaze over because it becomes a difficult process. Mm -hmm. And that creates a disconnect for the veteran. They think, you know, oh, we're not interested, mm -hmm. or worse, we can't understand. Mm -hmm. And, and this, this is a key point that I make, Charlie, and something I think really needs to be addressed. There's a huge civilian-military divide. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it happens whether we're in, in war or peace, but it becomes more acute um, when we're talking about the return of veterans because in some ways we look at each other in very unrealistic terms the the military um especially active service you know as much as they probably won't say this out loud has contempt for civilian society you know you're, you're out there working hard you're making sacrifices you look at us and you think like oh you know you're, you're sitting at home you know watching movies on netflix eating popcorn and ice cream and, and getting lazy not worrying about what we're doing here right <laughs> playing on your iPhones, <laughs> that kind of stuff, right? Uh, uh, civilians assuage that guilt by by deifying the military. Mm -hmm. You know, put, giving them godlike status. There, there's every person in the military is a hero. Um, we have a fetish about it. We can't say anything bad about you. There's not one bad individual among the whole group. It, it's it's just nonsense. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there are bad people in every profession, the military included, and we don't look at each other realistically. Contempt for, from the military for civilians, mm -hmm. civilians looking at the military in this godlike way where we can't understand what you've been through. Mm -hmm. So that's nonsense, and, and the military buys into that. You don't know what it's like. You weren't there. Right, right. That's what we say okay. all the time. That's what we say all the time, all the time. All the time. Yeah. It's a bad excuse, but it's an understandable <laughs> yeah. excuse. Right. And the excuse happens for this reason. Yeah. Civilians don't understand specifically what you've gone through militarily mm -hmm. if they haven't been in the military themselves or they haven't spent a lot of time in war zones. But they can understand the underlying factors that are part of that. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. Almost every woman in the world has experienced some form of sexual abuse or sexual violence that creates post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. you know, if, if they've been involved in you know actual rape or you know physical violence against themselves anyone in a car accident has experienced physical violence mm -hmm. it's not the same as shooting at someone or getting shot but we can channel those the, our understanding of those feelings to understand the military experience um, if you're a, a, a black man in America, you know what the ambient threat of violence is to you um, almost every single day when you walk out your front door. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we in civilian society can understand what the military has gone through, not identi identically to your experience, but we're all human beings. We've all experienced threat of violence in mm -hmm. some ways. We all experience fear. We all experience bad memories. How do we all experience making bad decisions? Yes, we do. So, so how, how do we, how do we come together in that mutual understanding and realize our experiences are different from yours, but it doesn't mean we can't understand the underlying feelings. And it's also on Kevin. It's it's also part of the you know a, a broken social contract. You know we have a contract between the civilian world and the military. 
You know, you're going out there to protect us. You're going out there to protect our freedoms and, and ideals and, and the, our way of life. And so you're in service to us. We put you out there. And now when you come back, it's our responsibility to take care of you, to embrace you, to to get you healthy again, to, to, to listen to you, to hear your stories and, and to, to take them back and so that we can understand better what we, what we put you through. Whether you agree with the wars or not, that's not the point. It's about our contract that we have with them and recognizing that, that those are the, they're going to carry those wounds by themselves if we don't do our part as in the civilian world. And so there's a broken social contract, and it is perpetuated exactly by this idea that, one, from the military standpoint, you don't get us. <laughs> you don't know what we've been through. You have no idea. I can't connect with you. So that leads to the alienation, the separation, the isolation that uh, often happens. And then, the, and then the deification of the military by the civilian population that we've mythologized them. When, wait a second, we need to hear the truth, just like we witnessed with, um, with uh, Corporal Wald and seeing the truth of what is actually happening and going and having more of those kinds of conversations so that we can get a clearer picture of what we're putting our men and women through. And then to use that information to make better choices, better decisions uh, on how we use the military in the future. I mean, you, you said it perfectly. Exactly. You know, it is that broken social contract. Mm -hmm. And what we have to work towards is finding the common ground that we have. We mm -hmm. have it already. We're all afraid. We've all experienced violence. Yes. You know, we, we, we all have some kind of post-traumatic stress. We all have some kind of moral injury from making the wrong decision. And so we've got to mine that common ground um, and accept that our experiences specifically are different, but you know, we can understand the emotions that, that are underlying of them. Um, I interviewed Dr. Jonathan Shea for this book, Charlie. Um, Love his work. He, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just a, a MacArthur genius. Um, yeah. Yeah. He wrote, you know, Achilles in, in Vietnam, yeah. Oedipus in America. And he said to me specifically, you know, when you put a gun in a young man's hand and you send him to war, you incur a forever debt to his soul. You, you know, you do. You've changed him. Um, and that doesn't mean putting him on a shelf or building a pedestal and, and making a statue to him. That means dealing with him as a human being and helping him or her to heal in that process. But also, you share their burden of the war experience. You accept your responsibility in sending them there. Mm -hmm. But you don't absolve yourself from, from actually understanding it. You know, and, and the service person has to meet us halfway as well. They yes. don't want to tell their stories. It, it's incredibly difficult. It took me three years to tease these stories out of, you know, young men and women that I knew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that I've been with, that, that trusted me. Not, you know, and, and trust for getting trust with the journalists is, is not an easy thing, but they knew me. Right. And it still took a, a very, very long time. You what know, you my own father, and I, I mentioned him in the book, mm -hmm. um, never told me his stories. And because of it, I held this this mm -hmm. kind of misguided thought about him. You know, it, it, you read the book, and so you, you realize I thought he might have been he might have participated in a war crime. Mm -hmm. He hadn't. Yeah, the <laughs> picture. If you didn't know anything about the picture that you have, it's true. Yeah, the, the, the picture yeah. You know, for the viewers is my father holding a gun on Japanese prisoners of war. Yeah, forty five. He was a, a young Navy lieutenant, and you know, I thought he might have he might have killed them, mm -hmm. um, but you know. 
What do you think, and, and this is kind of leads into my next question here, and is about what do you think is the, one of the hardest things uh, for veterans to do is to come back and to share their stories in, in meaningful ways that allow them the opportunity to be able to, you know, get that, that connection that they need to heal that social contract between them and the civilian world and to heal from their own experiences. And, you know, it's, it's in telling those stories like you have in the book. And, and, and you know, you just mentioned how, how difficult it was to be able to get the, to the, the guys to be able to talk to you about these things, even after you'd already established trust with them. It still took them a long time. What are the consequences uh, of, you know, the sailors and the airmen and the, and the Marines and the soldiers that come back? from combat or from war experiences, and they just bury their suffering, they bury their pain, they, they don't address their unaddressed guilt because it's there. What are the consequences of veterans not sharing their stories? That's such a great question. I, I don't think there is a greater con, uh, you know, consequence to not sharing stories from conflict because it means we will perpetuate those conflicts. Exactly. We go to yes. war so easily, so yep. easily. We, we almost did with Iran again. I couldn't imagine the next generation of young men and women, and they were, they were willing to yeah. do it because they hadn't heard. They hadn't heard clearly or directly, you know, from those, those soldiers and Marines that had served, um, you know, what the experience was mm-hmm. you know, these experiences that will haunt them for the rest of their lives, you know, good experiences and bonding, you know, but, but terrible experiences and, and, and killing it and having friends killed mm-hmm. um, and carrying that with them forever. And quite frankly, it's going to bankrupt the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, we do owe them a debt for the rest of their natural lives. You know, my father died a couple of years ago. He was in his nineties. He was still getting care at the VA for his service in Vietnam and his service in Korea. And we will owe them their lives, you know, the care for the rest of it, which we should. Mm-hmm. Yes. Probably more than spending, you know, trillions of dollars on a, you know, fighter aircraft. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that, that's what we, we do owe them. And yet, if you continue to have wars in perpetuity, yeah. you will never be able to pay for it. You just won't. I mean, the, the VA system is already overburdened. Um, and so... Yeah, I think that consequences is just we're going to be doomed to repeat history. You know, I, I think we're I think we're already there. I mean, we, this storytelling has to happen on a larger level. Yeah. The things that we were talking about prior to the interview starting, you know, with Ed Tick um, and Warrior's Heart, going over to Vietnam or going over to these war zones mm-hmm. and kind of making peace, coming back and sharing those experiences, mm-hmm. um, you know, with the community. The community actively being a part of it you know in the history of of warfare you know we see warrior societies do that yes um native americans sitting around the campfire passing the peace pipe sharing the stories of of the conflict same thing the greeks creating you know drama and tragedy and art from their experiences um gives voice to to what they've experienced and perhaps through art society can understand it better you know what they've gone through and so hopefully that, that can happen. I don't know, but well, I'm not overly optimistic. <laughs> well, we haven't had a great track record. I mean, and yeah, we have those pockets uh, and, and, and of what you just talked about, the Native Americans and then the ancient Greeks and being able to use theater as a means to be able to purge and, and address those deep archetypal wounds. I mean, the guys who wrote those plays were veterans. I mean, they were generals. 
Two of them were generals, and one of them was a was a foot soldier. Uh, and they built these, and but they were trying to achieve that cleansing of the soul, the catharsis that comes from addressing the guilt, the 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 pain, the loss, the the ag- But you have to address it. We have to and. We're not doing that, and you're right. If we don't do these stories and share them, we're just going to keep perpetuating the same thing over and over again, and that's what ends up happening. That's what ends up happening. And Charlie, I don't know how you feel about this, and, and, and I know it's a really hot-button topic, but in some ways I feel we should have the draft. Um, it, the, the professional armies is remarkable in, in a lot of ways in, in what they can accomplish, but I don't think that we share that burden completely. You know, The draft can be non-combat roles, but if we yeah. share, you know, responsibility for protecting, providing, building our society, um, then it's more common. I, I don't know what percentage of veterans are of society. It's very small, though. It's very small. Um, it's like one you know, percent, I think. Of, yeah, yeah. It, it's tiny. It's very um, tiny. And, and so until that becomes, you know, more broadly met, you know, I think we are going to have difficulty in, in, you know, true understanding of each other. Well, one of the one of the uh, uh, soldiers that you interviewed, he worked, he fought for the Israeli Defense Force, and I think in Israel they all have everyone is conscripted to be able to both men and women to serve in those ways, so they really understand what it is, and so they have a part to play in how their society functions. It's not just at the at the expense of somebody else or somebody else carries the burden. Everybody's carrying the burden. And so, you know what, that's, that might be a really good idea to, to reinstitute that in a way so that everybody right. takes a share in it, not just a few people. And it doesn't necessarily have to be just based on, you know, um, combat arms. No, no, no. It, yeah. it, it can be anything. It, it can be like the Peace Corps. In Peace some Corps. Ways. And, yeah. know, like the kind of dangers you know, those volunteers face in, in, in going to unknown places and experiencing, you know, the, the dangers of, of those those particular areas mm-hmm. can be intense. Um, you know, but, but that will help us in, in that shared burden of, of both building and, and protecting and supporting our society. Kevin, I can't believe that we're over at the top of the hour. I mean, this this went by so fast. <laughs> I, mean, I want to keep yeah. talking to you for the so, so much to talk about. Right? There's so much to talk about. Um, where, what do you hope people will take quickly? Uh, just a couple real quick questions. What do you hope people will take away from reading these stories about these modern combatants? Well, I, I want them to see them as human, first of all. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that they are individuals before they became soldiers. You know, they're, they're people from all walks of life. And that we have lessons to learn you know, from their lives. Um, there are people that, that are able to come back successfully despite the struggles that they have. Um, and, and those stories are, are in there. Um, but really, you know, one of the things that we, we didn't talk about a lot, Charlie, is the role that drugs have yeah. in, in conflict. Um, they're a huge part in, in pre-conflict, conflict, and post-conflict, uh, very often in negative ways. Um, you and I have both had our experiences in mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol and in negative ways, trying to self-medicate you know, after these conflicts. Yeah. Um, I, I think there are positive sides to it, too. You know, we're seeing um, new research into MDMA mm-hmm. um, and also uh, marijuana in, in helping to treat PTSD. Mm-hmm. So, you know, drugs and pharmacology can be part of the solution, but not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And we can't just medicate with benzodiazepines and, and alcohol and, and so on and antidepressants and expect 
problem to go away. It won't. <laughs> it doesn't. That, that, that it just, just makes, makes it worse. It <laughs> <laughs> made yeah. it worse for me. Yeah. I mean, it absolutely made like, it worse for me. Absolutely. And, you know, in some cases, um, you know, there there are therapeutic aspects of it, but that are not necessarily being embraced. A, a lot of veterans that I've talked to um, want marijuana to be, you know, allowed to be distributed within the VA, even though it, you know, it's against the law federally. A lot of states are are accepting it as, as part of, you know, therapeutic, along with um, talk therapy and, mm-hmm. and CBT as, as to help heal. Yeah. Well, Kevin, um, we're going to close here just a second. I just want to um, let, make a quick – folks, we are doing today uh, and the next uh, – every Friday now all the way to the 25th of September. This is part of the Veterans Summit Part 1. Uh, the council has partnered up with the Trauma Sensitive Awareness Foundation uh, to do these special series for veterans and their loved ones and advocates for exploring cutting-edge treatments and alternative therapies – hearing pioneering veterans and mental injury experts and uh, journalists who have been out there and have, have seen been in the hot zone and to find hope for PTS, TBI, moral injury, sleep disturbance, family conflict, emotional trauma, and more. Part two debuts in November at www.t-saf.org. That's t-saf.org. Stay tuned for that. Please go. These are going to be for free and available to veterans and their families and their loved ones in perpetuity as far as we as long as we can make it. All of this one and, and then the other uh, shows are all going to be available for free for veterans on their website. Uh, want to thank KUHS Denver as well. Thank you, KUHS uh, and all the people here who have allowed the, the council to be broadcast from this platform to spread the message of hope and reconciliation and, and restoration for all people who have suffered from violence, abuse, and trauma and PTS. Uh, thank you, Henry, and everybody here at KUHS. We are the stream, streaming here in Denver, Colorado, all across the nation and all across the world. Thank you for allowing me to be your host. Kevin, I always ask, I mean, it's, I, I thank you so much for joining us on the council today. I always ask my guests right before we close out the show, um, if you could give one piece of advice, one bit of wisdom from your life experience, what would it be? Well, it's hard to distill all that down, but I, I think sharing your story is one of the greatest gifts that you can give. You know, it's instructive and it's, it's also cathartic for you. And so if you have the opportunity to do that and to do it authentically, um, I would take it, try to. Mm-hmm. Well, sir, it has been an honor. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, peop- and they can, people can buy the book, uh, The Things They Cannot Say on your website. Uh, where can they purchase it? Uh... Sure, you know, pretty much anywhere on the web, Amazon. Uh, it's available in, in audio form now. I just uh, did a, a session with recorded books uh, last December, and, and I believe that's out now. So, well, thank you. It's a, it's a gift to humanity for humanity, sir. Thank you. So. Appreciate it. All right. Talking with you. <clears throat> Thank you. All right, folks. Thank you so much for tuning into the council today. We are going to be back next week with another fantastic guest here on, <clears throat> excuse me, the Veterans Summit Series, uh, part one of the council and the Trauma Sensitive Awareness Foundation special. Folks, may you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. May you all be whole. God bless. We'll see you next week.